0: all right folks welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast i'm your host justin here with a quick word before we dive in now in this episode i chat with musician don dockin about a nightmare on elm street 3 his new album heaven comes down life on the road robert england and more As always, thank you for listening out there, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, if you're interested in a video, I have recently begun posting the videos to YouTube, so if you're interested, you can find us on there at Monsters, Madness, and Magic. There's also a link in the description. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Take us back in time, Don. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker,
1: or all of the above? Well, I'm a book reader, obviously. When the ebooks came along, I was like, yes. You know, you're a tour bus in your bunk. Yeah. Like, you're like in a coffin, and you got nine guys snoring and farting. But it was great to put my headphones on when ebooks came out, and I could just lay in my bunk, and the guy you know, narrates the book. And you get some good people that do it, and you get some people that suck. But I was an ebook reader, yeah.
0: When you were growing up and you think back to, you know, formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind?
1: American Bandstand. I mean, you know, come on, who didn't watch American Bandstand right. before MTV? You know, that was the only show that had everybody from everybody. I mean, everybody was on American Bandstand. So that was really cool that toward the end, you know, we got to be on American Bandstand. And Dick Clark was an icon, of course, and he did the New Year's Eve, dropped the ball every Times Square and... I remember the show we did was with Gladys Knight and the Pips. Absolutely. Interesting, collective Dawkins last night. Yeah. Nice. And, yeah. <laughs> and we we're only supposed to do one show, song, you know, lip syncing. And I was like, man, this is so awesome. Like, you know, here I was 10 years old watching American Bandstand, watching the Monkees or Paul and the Raiders. And now I'm on it. Millions of people. Mick said, you know, what well, was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to you? And Mick said, meeting Gladys Knight and the Pips backstage. Man. He got the biggest smile on his face we're only supposed to do one song we went to commercial and dick clark's sister came back and said he said you can do another song and i went really two so we did and you can look it up on youtube we did alone again and lucky i think so that was really cool to him i really he was a great guy what year was that buck uh i don't know 86 87 then they had the other show that was competing it was more like called soul train it was very st- surreal to be a child watching American Bandstand and then all of a sudden we're on it. So that was really cool, man. And you know, he had like four million people watch that show, this was before MTV. And I, our record sales like shot up the charts and, and it was really cool. And when Mick said, I loved meeting last night in the Pips, we'd been on there a million times, Dick got that big smile and he's like, I'm gonna let Doc and do two songs. That was great. <laughs> and then unfortunately he asked George, what was the worst thing that's ever happened to you on tour? And, and George said, play in Detroit. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's where Dick Clark came from. <laughs> you know, like his start of his career. And we're all like, no, 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 you don't mean that. You know, we're no, 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 because George has social Tourette's. We're, no, no. <laughs> he just means that, you know, he was sick on that show and it was really horrible and he had poopoo. We're just and even Nick, Dick was, you know, like jumping in and like, no, he didn't mean like we hate Detroit. He don't want to piss off a couple hundred thousand people in that town. We try to do damage control you should google it sometime it's it's hilarious how dick clark went what he hadn't done his homework that dick clark started in detroit <laughs> so, and he's telling what's worse gonna happen to you playing detroit I was like oh shit <laughs> well, that was george
0: so don what about your parents were either them musically inclined is that where you think you got it from the interest
1: yeah well i mean my father was a jazz musician, trombone, and a singer. He did the classics, like the '40s music, like Benny Goodman and can't remember the other guy's name right now. Glenn Miller, you know, jazz classic. He had an orchestra, the Jerry Dockin orchestra, for till he played till he was eighty. And then he, I went to see him a couple times just for fun, and he'd have to sit down on a stool because he was getting old. It's funny. He said a couple peop, some couple times, people showed up at his show and said, oh, "I thought Dockin was playing because they said Jerry Dawkins, They they went to the <laughs> show anyway. There's all these like 75-year-old people, you know, dancing to Glenn Miller. That was kind of hilarious. I actually played with my father, I played an army bass when I was like 12. It was probably one of the first shows I ever did. But all the officers were having, you know, a dance at the bass and they had a lot of kids and they wanted some rock and roll. And my dad took me out there and bring your guitar and you can play a couple rock songs for their kids. So I did. One of the first shows I ever did, I was probably 12. Or 13 well, that was kind of cool but my dad played jazz his whole life my mother was a pianist on her side of the family my grandmother was a pianist my daughter is a classical trained pianist so it's genetics you know and my son didn't grab it he wanted to learn I my fault i didn't give him a lot of lessons because i was on the roll all the time but tyler was just my son was just into planes and that's why he's a pilot he flies seven six seven that's the biggest plane they make it's a big-ass plane he flies to europe and transcon or works for united
0: now what about yourself don did was it the voice first or did you gravitate towards an instrument initially
1: well i first played drums i first played drums what grade was that fifth sixth grade the first show i said i guess i could say i ever played was uh at the end of the year, my sixth grade, I think, the, everybody had to do a project. And the teacher said, "You, if you want to, you know, I had a guy play guitar with and a guy I played drums and we played in the classroom and for the last day of the year, and I played Gloria and Louie Louie. <laughs> That's about all I knew, you know, because <laughs> anybody can learn Louie Louie in two seconds. Da-da-da, da-da, da-da-da. <laughs> one finger, da-da-da, da-da. And the cool thing about that song is, you know, the government got involved bomb and spent million you know, millions of dollars trying to ban it because they thought that the lyrics were pornography and you don't even know what he's saying. You know, he was from the Caribbean and he was talking in Caribbean slang and all you know remember is Louis Louis, oh baby, we gotta go. And he goes, I'm sang around, What the fuck is he saying? <laughs> and the government literally tried to ban it and spent a shitload of money trying to decipher what he was singing like millions typical government shit right (laughs) get it off the radio this is a he's talking about sex or something bad and and the joke was no the guy's from the caribbean he was singing caribbean slang and it took like 10 15 years you know they finally said look it's just i'm from the caribbean that was (laughs) kind of funny though that's all i remembered right i did the same thing i went louie louie Oh baby, you know when we gotta go. And I had uh huh, or chada, okay, come all, all of baby I mean, I'm just mumbling, you know. <laughs> you but that was kind of funny. And I remember <laughs> the government tried to ban it from the radio, which made it obviously a bigger hit. With the OG again, uh, band band uh, well, was Cop Killer or one of those. And then Tipper Gore got in there and said, You know, you're we don't like your lyrics I don't know if you were old enough to yeah, remember. Yeah,
0: I'm trying to think I'm just trying to think of the name of the band. I don't know what you're talking about. It's Ice T. I can't remember the name of the Ice-T.
1: band. Ice T. Yeah. I and just... they're trying to and she wanted to, you know, we're gonna pass a law that when you put a record out, we're gonna review your lyrics and make sure they're appropriate for the radio. Really? you read the constitution? Freedom of speech? But that was a big to do. But you know, I don't think that band would have taken off if all the hubbub about their lyrics. I don't think it was Cop Killer, it was one of those other ones, but the bottom line is Kipper Dor- Gore tried to, you know, push them down and they just got bigger. And remember, they put the stickers, said Parental Advisory, you know, under 16. I'm like, and they're probably going, thank you, Tipper. You just, <laughs> you just made our record sell 4 million copies. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, we did the video uh, The Hunter. And one of the scenes, Jeff Pilson was running through the forest. These people are t- chasing him with torches, like Frankenstein. <laughs> and they sh- cut. And he's in a cage, and and the cage on the side said PMRC, parental something. Da da da. But that stupid. She was such. She was like white bread on toast, yeah. and she really thought she could because her husband, who he was. Oh, I'll just get my husband to pass a law that all musicians, you know, have to be, you know, censored. And thank God, D. Snyder, you know.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, that's around the same time as the whole Twisted Sister situation.
1: Yep, and D went there, and they're thinking, you know, we're going to tear him apart, but D is a smart guy, and he talked very eloquently, and he said, look, you know, I write what I write, and I don't think about the government censoring my lyrics. You know, D went to Congress and put the kibosh on that, and God bless him for that, but strange times in that late (laughs) 80s when (laughs) the government's, well, I'm going to send my and record back to the attack, and you got to send us all your lyrics to Tipper, and and her five milf girlfriends, <laughs> you know, multi-millionaires that have senators and congressmen, and we'll, we'll, we'll decide what you can sing and what you can't. What a bunch of bullshit.
0: So when do you start to take music seriously as a youngster, starting your first bands and maybe think, hey, I can do this as a career?
1: Honestly, without exaggerating, I never thought about it as being a career. I just like playing. You know, like, my friends would get together. I had many, many drummers and different bass players and versions of Air Dokken. Before that, we were called Airborne, and then some band got a record deal called Airborne, so we had to change the name, and I went, shit, we'll just call it Dokken for the time being until I can come up with a name. But I remember thinking, we were playing the club scene with Van Halen, Quiet Riot, and all that, and we were always the support band. And honestly, my, my dream was, like, Maybe we could get a big enough fan base someday. We could headline the whiskey, which holds a whopping 650 people. That was my goal. But I assumed, you know, I'd go to college and get a life. And, you know, I was a cook. My uncle was a famous chef. and he was, I was a sous chef. And I just figured, I'd, you know, I'd move on. And playing music was just for fun. Mm-hmm. I didn't have these grandiose visions of me being a rock star. I, I, did, I really didn't. You know i was just great i just love playing because when you're on stage it's a spiritual rush i always say if i ever write a book it'll say famous by luck <laughs> you know we're famous by accident right time right place right person but i didn't have that drive that most of my peers did to we're gonna make it and we're gonna be famous we'll be the rolling stones and i didn't have that i was just happy to go out on the weekends had a job work nine to five and we go out and play the whiskey or the Starwood or Troubadour and we were just happy to play.
0: This is something i like to ask everybody Don before we get too far away from your childhood. Uh, What scared you as a kid?
1: Nothing. I wasn't worried about anything. When I got into high school it got a little sketchy because I went to Venice High. That was right when the Crips and the Bloods and B13 so this, the school got segregated. There'd be the Crips over there, V13, the Hispanics, and then you had the Bloods, depending if you wore a blue bandana or a red bandana. And I lived in Venice. So when I'd walk to school, I was like, wow, whopping half a mile. You know, they'd try to jump you and give me your lunch money. And I walk with my little brother who was like a wrestler. He was buffed. My little brother, he was like in eighth grade. And he goes, screw you. I'm not giving you my lunch money. And we get in fights. And they were chicken shit. You know, it was always three against one or two. I finally had enough, you know, and that's, it was interesting that right in the corner of Venice High School, they opened up a Taekwondo studio. So I started taking Taekwondo and I studied for 20 years Taekwondo. I'm done, you know, you're not taking my shit. Mm -hmm. Now I drive by that high school. It's surrounded by chain link fence. And I thought, what a shame when I went in high school, you could walk on campus, walk off. But, you know, I got it. They didn't know if you were a gangbanger or a student. They surrounded the school like a prison with chain link. So different times, man, different times.
0: When did you first meet George?
1: Well, I didn't know him. I just knew that he had a really good band called The Boys while Mick was in the band. And they had a singer that kind of looked like David Lee, long blonde hair and gregarious and... I could see that George was a shredder. And the next year, Ben Halen got signed and everything took off. Then all these bands from the Midwest were coming to Hollywood thinking they will get a record deal. Didn't happen. Nobody got a record deal. Because the new wave thing came. It was Blondie and Devo and New York Punk. And all of a sudden, they weren't booking rock bands anymore. Everybody talks about the Whiskey, the Whiskey, the Whiskey, and the Trouba. I go, dude, there was like 15 clubs in LA. You could drive to the Valley and play the Rock Corporation. You could go over here and play Westwood. You know, there was tons of clubs. You could actually pay your rent if you just kept playing different clubs every weekend. I remember seeing Lynch and the boys and Mick was an amazing drummer. And then I met people that owned a club in Hamburg. They said, you're playing hard rock, and which was, wasn't popular right then. 78, Van Halen took off, got their record deal, became superstars. And I got an offer to go to Germany and this club owner, uh, his name, uh, Michael Boyens, owned this big club in Hamburg, and he said, you should come to Germany because, you know, all the bands you like and the music you play is very popular in Europe. Saxon, Judas Priest, band that Mickey was in before talking and Black Diamond. Or, there was a lot of great bands that I liked. I always liked the European music. You know, nobody knew about Judas Priest or Saxon. Even the Scorpions hadn't made it in America. So I went to Germany. He said, look, I'm in a band, come over, you buy the plane ticket, sleep in my house. I got drums, I got an amp, I got this and that. So me and Juan Crucier, before he joined RAT, we all went to Germany. I'd never been out of the country, (laughs) didn't speak the language, and we just went to Germany and basically played the same thing the Beatles did. People don't realize the Beatles, they just didn't blow out of England, you know, at the cavern. They went to Germany, and they played all the clubs in Hamburg, which is where all the prostitutes are. <laughs> so we basically did, we call it the Beatles run. The top 10, the Chicago club, star club. These were all the clubs that the Beatles played before they blew out. So we did the same thing, played the same clubs as the Beatles. And it was cool. It was great. And that's how I got my start. And we actually developed a following and went back again like a year and a half later. And they told us not to come, but I went anyway. And It was snowing, freezing my ass off. They had a thing called the Eero Center, Underground Parking at night where all the hookers would go. And they're in like fishnets, but it's 30 degrees. <laughs> you know. And we just wanted to walk down there and look around at all the hot babes and they talk and us, we no no we don't speak German. I speak English. No, no, we're just looking. <laughs> you know, we check it out, man. We're from America. You don't you don't walk into a parking lot and there's always women walking around and that was kind of cool. We did those club runs and that's how the whole thing kind of started. That was way before George and
0: I will speak with musicians as well as actors, Don, and a lot of them are in the horror realm. So big Dream Warriors fan. I just have to ask yeah. you, how did that opportunity come about for you?
1: Well, it's great that, you know, if you look at this historically, that Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was the biggest of all. They made like seven of them. And Robert and I did an interview on a television show. and We talked about it. But, you know, he'd had enough, you know what I mean? It ran its course. That was the only song ever that I've written that somebody told me how the chorus had to be. You have to put the lyrics, dream warriors in your chorus. And I'm like, okay. So I asked, the, the director was a fan of Doc, and that's all. I said, can you send me the script? And he sent me a rough cut of the movie with the timeline going by. It was a very rough edit. And then I saw what the movie's about. Freddie came to the kids in their dreams, and he come through the mattress, and all that stuff. And that gave me the inspiration for writing the lyrics. And that was the end of it. And then we did the video. It was one of the first videos, I have a platinum video award on my wall. It was the first video that ever sold a million copies. Shit, I didn't know that. Oh man, we made bank on that song. And then I was bummed when they did the repressing, they took our song off. They not wanna pay the royalty.
0: I can remember just being a kid, rewinding the end of that VHS, just to hear Dream Warriors at the end credits, over and over. Very
1: end credits, right? <laughs> took it off.
0: Yeah, so uh, there's been I've heard some stories floating around, so I'll just ask you while I got you that there are some uh, there was some wild things going on that video shoot with you guys and Robert England.
1: No, that's all bullshit and fodder. There's no wild things going on, except we were all glued to Patricia Arquette. You know, her sister was famous, was an actress, but Patricia shows up. It was really cold because they had taken all the sets down from the house and the hell and all that. And took all the sets down and moved them out to a warehouse out in simi valley where we shot and it was like 40 degrees you know who would have known from that video in her first movie that she'd go on and she got nominated for an oscar i think she got an oscar
0: was robert on set as well
1: hell yeah that was a long shoot dude i mean it was cold we're in a warehouse i remember the director didn't think that maybe we should get fed and i'm like dude we need We're hungry, you know? So he sent out for like pizzas. It took like two hours for Domino's to show up with cold pizzas because we're out in the warehouses. One of their brothers has miles of warehouses with sets, and that kind of sucked. And I I remember Roberts in his makeup, and he had one piece here, one piece here. This is like these prosthetics, and he was starving, and he was trying to eat a pizza in between shoots, and his face piece started falling off, the burnt face. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, uh, "Robert, your, your your face is falling off." He's like, "What?" I go, "Your face." And they put it while well, I'm a spirit gun. I go, I "Just want to let you know your face is falling off," because <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to shoot. Uh, <laughs> your face is falling off, and they're like, "He's like, oh shit!" So they had to go fix it. But that was a tough shoot. You know, it was a lot of fun, and it was really cold, really, really cold. And that was it. And there's this one scene where. George breaks through a wall, you know, and there's Patricia and he breaks through playing the guitar and the solo. And the carpenters screwed up, put a breakaway wall. So George started to go through the wall, you know, roll, he comes to the wall and he just kind of hits it and stops. And the director goes, No, you gotta really go for it, you know. And you see it in the video, he has to, he had to really run through the wall as hard as he could because they put frickin' two by fours or one by twos in there. And he had literally crashed through the wall because they screwed up. Usually they use like two by fours for framing a house, balsa woods. You just crash through it. If you see the video, he's kinda crashing through. He gets stuck halfway, then he pushed through the rest of the way. He was all cut up and bruised and Carpenter goes, Oh, I'm sorry, man, my bad. Because he didn't know that the director was gonna want him to crash through a wall. But that was the only mishap that George had to crash through a real wall. That was kind of funny. And Robert was there the whole time. We hung out and we actually became friends. I live in New Mexico now, Santa Fe. He has a house here in Santa Fe that he comes here in the winter and skis. And and I always wondered, like, you know, for years and years, like because I always thought when you're Freddy Krueger, you get you get uh, stereotyped, and I thought you know he was a known actor before. But I thought this is going to end his career because he did like. But when I met him, he was on Broadway. He's doing movies. He's doing great. He's still working. He didn't get stereotyped, probably because he's now just Robert England. You know. Right. I've seen the mini movie. He's a very accomplished actor. We talked about that and he said, No, luckily I was Freddie, be myself again and do Broadway and plays and movies. And 30 years went forward to we did the Gibson TV interview with me and Robert. So that was cool. We just talked about New Mexico and what's going on in your life. What's going on in your life? We're all getting older. <laughs> He's a great guy. He's a really sweet guy.
0: So when you got approached about it, were, did, were you aware of the franchise at all?
1: yes i love horror movies i mean i you know when halloween comes up i love it when they play the original frankenstein the original dracula the second a werewolf there was three werewolves there's two frank and three frankensteins dracula the actor that played dracula and he turned down you've probably seen the movie he turned down frankenstein as he was a real dramatic actor played dracula and he said i couldn't believe it that the Guy that played, I can't remember his name, that played Frankenstein, didn't even talk through the whole movie. Uh, he uh, <laughs> didn't have to say a word, man. Just uh, that was his whole role, and that launched him into a famous actor. And He did a lot of Frankensteins and uh, Belly Lugosa. That was who played Dracula he said i on that as they did in the great movie that johnny depp did about at the end of his career you know he did that stupid movie called spaceship something number nine or something really yeah. like and he filmed the whole movie for like a couple thousand dollars i can't remember what it was called and it was sad that bella was a heroin addict and he went out there everybody knows the story it's johnny depp did the movie and he loved bella and but then he died and then so you see the end of the movie. The guy that played it was always covered up with a cape on his face, you know, walking through the graveyard. It wasn't Bella Lugosi, as he'd passed away. And that's a great movie, and Johnny Depp did it. It was a really great movie. It was sad to see how Bella had lived in a little house in the valley, and his career was over. He always said, I should've taken the Frankenstein role. (laughs)
0: So, Don, while I got you, let's uh, talk about the new album that you got coming out on the 27th, Heaven Comes. I did.
1: Gypsy's out now on YouTube, which is an animated video of the song Gypsy. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, I have. You know, I knew this was my last record, so I wanted everything to be over the top. And it took us two years to write it. And then I had my surgery, which is common knowledge on the internet, that my right arm is, as you can see, is paralyzed. I have a really horrible looking hand. The whole arm's paralyzed. Fucking doctor. I can't play guitar. I can't play bass. I can't play piano anymore. So I can't make music. So I said, guys, thank God I'd written 30 songs before that. And we had all this music in my catalog and we just kind of picked the best and made Heaven Comes Down. I will stick to my guns that we got lighting in a bottle. Oh, dude, obviously, you know, every actor, every musician, new album, new movie, it's the best, it's the greatest, uh, uh, even if it's shit. But The truth is, it's a great album. Every song on Heaven Comes Down is good. We wrote 25 songs, recorded 14 of the best, and the label said they only wanted 10. And I said, well, that makes no sense. Metallica did load and reload, they had 15 songs. But the label didn't want any more than 10 because we're putting it out on vinyl because having a huge comeback vinyl. So if they would have put out 10 on the vinyl and 15 on the CD, we would have been competing with ourselves so they took four songs off I was pretty bummed and they were really good so and they were me playing guitar and bass so I was kind of bummed about that but maybe they'll come out in a special edition collector's edition sometime we're on tour we've already done like 20 shows I'm only off for like eight days and I'm going back out Wisconsin uh, you just got to go net. there's like we have like eight or nine more shows and all the way through November and I just got back three days ago. We had like 7,000 people at the Big E in Massachusetts. There was a lot of people there. And that was cool. But right now I'm concentrating on going to Europe and Japan because we have a lot of fans. There was a point in time, maybe 85, that we were bigger than Bon Jovi in Japan. We were really big. We'd sell out arenas everywhere. Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, Yokohama. We I mean, we were a big band. So we haven't gone there in seven years since I did the Docker union But we're on tour right now in the US, winding down eight shows. So anyway, you know, it was great. The big E. I mean, it's really weird this tour in 2023 that it seems like our audience is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a whole new generation of fans. They're like in their early twenties. And I do these yeah, these things now called meet and greets. Mm-hmm. So I ask them, how do you know about Dock? And you weren't born yet. And they're like well my parents gave me all their records and cds and cassettes <laughs> so these kids got turned on to docking at 10 12 and 15 but they couldn't go to the shows so now they're in their 20s they're like oh man i love those doctor i'm gonna go see docking so we have a whole new audience kids in their 20s i look out in the audience and i see people in their 40s and 50s and 60s it's a very eclectic audience we have a thousand people four days ago in massachusetts it's been interesting to see all these young people when I meet because I see them singing the lyrics, into the fire, breaking the chains, in my dreams alone again. I'm like, dude, you weren't born. And they go, <laughs> we got turned on, we got turned on a docking via our parents. So that's kind of cool.
0: I know you just mentioned Don that you know they fucked your arm up and you can't play music anymore. But once this, they- do you plan to uh, tour in the future at all? as after this is wrapped up or is this your last tour as well
1: yes we'll keep touring i and i've done like a lot of interviews be it spain italy poland russia germany i've been doing interviews when i'm off the road and i tell them this is our last record and that's true but we're not gonna stop touring i mean there's nothing i can do the surgeon that screwed my life up will get ran over by a bus he was supposed to be the top surgeon at cedar sinai he really screwed me up my whole arm. It took a year for me to be able to, to raise my hand up above my head, a year, but you can see it's just skin and bone and you just severed. Like, I'm not talking about a nerve, I'm talking about thousands. So I was depressed, obviously. Came home, I was in a walker. You know, I'm in a cane and yeah, it sucked, man. But the bottom line is I would love to keep going as Doc, but I can't write any more songs. I'm screwed. I took my Steinway piano and shipped it to Los Angeles. 'Cause my daughter is a concert trained pianist. She was happy to get that. I don't know how I can write another record. I was talking to John Lem the other day. I said, do You want if this album is successful, do you want to do another one? And he said, I don't know if I have it in me. I'm the writer, I'm the singer, just like I was in Dawkins, you know. I'm not throwing my old guys under the bus, but I was the main writer. Right. I wrote the hits in my dreams and It's not Love and Alone Again and the Hunter. Even though when you look at the record credits and it says Don Dock and George Lynch, Jeff Pilson, Mick Brown, they didn't write those songs. And everybody knows in my camp that I wrote the songs, the guitar and the lyrics. Those other three guys were in Orange County with an ounce of cocaine, trying to come up with some good songs. And that's why I couldn't write with them because I don't do, I don't do drugs. It was the 80s, man. Like the old saying goes, if you're at the Rainbow or the Whiskey or on the Sunset Strip, chances are the cocaine you bought came from Carlos Escobar. <laughs> You know, he was the main dealer. I could look at cocaine with my friend's doing it. I could say, that's good cocaine. You're snorting toothpaste. <laughs> you know? I'm like, why is that coke all gooey and <laughs> looks weird? I'd take my finger and I'd lick it and go, that's not coke. Are you sure that's coke? Because I tried coke. I tried coke like, when I was 21, 22. Take a little, on your tongue and your whole face would go numb, you know? The cool thing about coke was, if there's anything cool about it, is You could have sex for hours and go to bed and go to sleep. Real pure cocaine. You were making love to your old lady and just going for it. But then again, I was young and you could go to sleep. Fast forward and we get famous and everybody's all amped and sweating. And I'm like, I don't know if that's cocaine, man. It's probably because they start putting meth in it and crystal meth and shit. shit. I'm like, dude, that's not the real deal, man. I I saw the real deal, the real (laughs) stuff, like the dentist do. Right. Put it in your tongue and your face goes numb. So those days are gone, and now cocaine is passe. The new drug of choice is fentanyl. Yeah,
0: fentanyl, yeah.
1: We got a big problem in New Mexico because it's going over the border, and I think we're averaging about 150 deaths a day right now in New Mexico because they have those presses, and they make the pills, and Mm -hmm. it looks like it's pharmaceutical, and it says 10 milligrams, which you can handle, but it could be 150 milligrams. And they're making it in trailers so people take a pill or smoke it and they die.
0: The yeah. patches are a problem too because people cut them open and they're supposed to be delayed release and then they get it all at once and instantly die.
1: Yep. I met people like that. I got kind of hooked on patches when I had some bad problems and these girls in the rehab said, yeah, we take the patches and we just cut them and just squeeze all the stuff into our mouth Ooh. all at once. So you're getting like a three-day patch all at once. Holy Not shit. Good. <laughs> no. The fentanyl patches, like everybody, if you're a addicted person, you abuse it, you know? Yeah. I'm on the road, and I, I, I recognize people that are jacked up, and it's very sad, you know? It's a crisis in America, and, you know, the government's like, is a crisis, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing about it? Jack
0: shit. Well, done. I'm not going to keep you too much longer here and let you go get your car, but... Uh... Yeah, we
1: yeah we got uh, we got off track. I don't think I'll be picking up my Mazarin. <laughs> no.
0: Well, just to wrap up here, I like this is another question I like to ask everybody. Have you ever had an experience you'd consider supernatural or paranormal?
1: Supernatural or paranormal? No, I don't think so. I remember I dropped acid when I was 14 for the first time. I lived in Lake Tahoe, and I felt guilty afterwards. My brother was like 17 months younger than me, Rick, and I slipped him a hit of acid. But that's when acid was acid. You know, we're talking about the Woodstock days, and San Francisco was only two hours away from Lake Tahoe, and I took a hoard. Everybody knows the name, Orange Sunshine. So I took some Orange Sunshine, gave some to him, and we went down to the beach, this beautiful, huge lake in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, living up there in those days was like being opie. <laughs> you know, it was like really I'm like, Where where's the sheriff? You know, we didn't have gangs and drugs and everybody's just a pot, you know? And acid. It was nineteen whatever it was, I can't remember, sixty six, seven. And we took acid and we just sat on the beach for about four hours and it was pure talk about supernatural. I wouldn't say supernatural, but I'd say it was more of a spiritual. Mm experience looking yeah. at over water of course you can Everybody, you do your hand you get the traces you know all that shit and all the colors you know red was real red and blue was real blue and <laughs> everything was all expounded you know and i think it's a shame the government took made lsd a schedule one drug and made it illegal i mean it helped so many people thousands and thousands of people coming back from vietnam with ptsd and schizophrenia and depression Suicidal. They did thousands of studies that LSD helped people quit drinking. Yeah. And quit doing this. And they weren't suicidal. It was a good drug. That's my opinion. I'll stick to it. And you do it in a setting where the problem with the people freaking out and going nuts because it was cut with something. It wasn't just LSD. It was like speed or some other shit in it. Pure LSD 25, I still stick to it. If you watch Vice TV, there's a whole show on these old men now that were professors and said, LSD was a great drug for helping people with suicidal tendencies, drug addiction, alcoholism. You know, it had its properties, but you got these old geezers in Congress. Look, marijuana in 40 states is still considered deadly. Yeah, I've never heard anybody dying on pot. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, I mean, come on, you're gonna die on smoking a joint. <laughs> It'd be but, a way, you know, hell of a way to go. <laughs> yeah, but go look at the Congress. These guys are eighty. They're senile. They came and talked like that senator last week, and he was talking, and he just stopped. He was just staring at the camera like, "Well, unfortunately, our president's kind of heading there." I mean, we're not. You're not stupid. I'm not stupid. You just watch him. I mean, if you want to do a new series of the Keep, you could put Biden <laughs> in there. You <laughs> could.
0: Well, Don, I'm about to let you go, man. Just to put a bow here, just what's on the horizon for you? What can you tell folks that's coming up?
1: I'm just going on the tour. I'm leaving again in about a week and a half, going back out wrap up the last eight shows. And then we thought for shits and giggles, we'd end our tour at the Whiskey. You know, it's too small for us. That's where I started, with playing with Van Halen, Quiet Riot. I mean, that's where I got my start. It's fitting. And I said I'd never play there. Again, it's just too small. We're going to end our tour in L.A., where I started you know in 1976 I was 22 or three don't remember I was young and I had this dream you talk about what you want to do and I had this dream I tell the guys Someday we're gonna headline the whiskey and sell it out (laughs) 650 people eight years later we're playing stadiums with Van Halen Scorpions Metallica and eddie van halen and i would sit after the show at night in the hotel and talk about that and i say eddie i played with you at the whiskey who would have thought that you fast forward only 10 years and we're playing stadiums and eddie's like dude i never thought it would happen (laughs) so eddie and i would just sit there and talk about how in the hell do we get from there to sold out hundred twenty thousand people i mean i went there in those days and saw metallica playing the troubadour for 400 people I remember my manager Cliff Bernstein he was also there and he said this band's going to be huge and he was right they're the biggest band in the world now Yeah, to say the least (laughs) I saw him play at a little club for 400 people and he said they're gonna they're gonna be huge and when I saw Metallica they actually opened for us and I called my manager and I said I know we might be more famous right now and we're making twice their money could you could put them on after us (laughs) You know, no. I, I said, I go. Can you put them on? You're the man. Can you put Metallica on after us? How do I compete when they end their show with "Kill 'Em All" or you know, all those songs? And then we we come on stage and we're doing "In My Dreams" or something or "It's Not Love." I mean, we look like the monkeys, you know, <laughs> because Metallica was so fucking ballsy. Tell the boys, George, Jeff, and Mick, look, look at Metallica. They go on stage every day and they are like a war machine. They are in it deep, they push themselves to the limit, yeah. And we've like done a world tour and we got kind of complacent hey, we're famous, we're rock stars, you know, we're all millionaires now, you know. And I, I don't think we were good at monsters, but warming up for Metallica was tough, and now they are the biggest. They can play anywhere they want. Look, they just played the Antarctic, <laughs> yeah. They did. <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> They're like, Have we is there any place on this planet we haven't played? Yeah, the Antarctic. Oh, fuck it, let's go to the Antarctic. <laughs> and we came in this big dome and they're all bundled up and they're playing in the Antarctic for the goddamn Eskimos. <laughs> I thought, how cool is that, That's that they cool. said we want to play every place in the planet. Man. And they're all billionaires, and they've sold hundreds of millions of records. So we were on that path, you know, to becoming superstars. But at the end of Monsters of Rock, you know, with the drugs and the fighting and me and George arguing, we failed. And, that, and the rest is history. I'm mm-hmm. grateful at my age to still be out there kicking ass for six and 7,000 people. I was talking to Robert Halford about that, and he's like, isn't this great? You know, that we can still go out and play for thousands of people after 50 years. I'm like, dude, I am totally grateful. I have no complaints, and God bless the Dawkins fans."
0: How old are you now, Don? 70? 60? 70. So like Just turned,
1: uh, June 29th, two months ago, I turned 70. And I told the band, I'm retiring at 70. That's because what happened to my arm and all that. But, you know, I miss, I like to play. I want to sing. It's a rush. We have our standard line about touring. It's 22 hours of hell for two hours of glory. Mm. (laughs) Airplanes stuck in Dallas for five hours. Planes cancel. You're stuck overnight. It's a pain in the ass. The days of tour buses, I love that. You walk off stage, go to the bus, get in my bunk, put in my buds. And I used to like uh, e-books. 'Cause I didn't have to read it. Yeah. You just put my earphone and just the guy would narrate the book. And those were great days. I tell the driver, wake me up and we're in the next city. <laughs> I loved it. But now you gotta fly everywhere. And you you spend your whole life I spend more time in the airport than anywhere. And I hate it. John texted me just this morning, said, Dude, took him 14 hours to get home. Two aborted landings weather you know what's on the news hurricanes storms floods i don't know where you're at but the east coast is getting their ass kicked yeah
0: i'm in south carolina
1: oh shit mm-hmm. carolina got hammered man yeah hammered <laughs> see the cars floating down the street yeah. i'm like holy shit this is something i should write a lyric about <laughs> yeah. that's kind of what we did the album's called heaven comes down because the world's going to hell in a handbasket bus it's going to hell what the hell happened so the whole world's changed. I'm glad I lived in the 70s and 80s. You're young, you got a long life ahead of you. I tell my kids, I don't welcome you guys to the future. So this is our last record. All the songs are stories. I didn't write any songs about love found, love lost. Well, my typical writing style. Yeah. It is what it is. It's a great record. And But you know, we can tour until I fall down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> look at the Stones. They just put out that cool new video where they're jumping off the billboard. Dude, they're in their eighties. Yeah, still rocking it. And the Stones are still kicking ass. Right. They've only lost. They've only lost Charlie. Passed away. I think the bass pair did too. But I know that Charlie died. Watts, but they're still touring. It ain't about money. It ain't about fame. You know, they, they don't Jagger. need either one of those. No, Mick Jagger's a superstar. You don't need shit. <laughs> Castle in England. And I know why he does it because he's because he loves to be on stage and feel that spiritual rush of all those people with their fists in the air, singing along. I get it as a singer. It's yes, a sir. spiritual thing. It's the Forget about heroin, fentanyl, cocaine. To be on stage, all those people sending all that energy toward you, it's the biggest high on the planet. There's nothing better.
0: I can imagine. Well, Don, I'm about to let you get out of here, man. I kind of kept you over right? here. It's okay. All right, that man. means
1: man, I can go pull some weeds. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Don, you take it easy, man.
0: It's been great talking take to you. Take care, boss. Good luck with your career. All right, thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Don. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next
1: time. Monsters, Madness, and Magic. <laughs>